Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You know, my mother always said, if there's a pink elephant in the room, the first thing you should do is introduce everybody to the elephant. And I said, hey, this is the elephant. <laughs> right. Let's talk about it. This is why they don't want to pay. Please rise. Court is now in session. Okay, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with my co-host, Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, week five, I think, of uh, uh, of the uh, shelter-in-place or whatever we're calling it, although now in Georgia, it's we, we don't have to do that anymore. Um, how are you doing up in Atlanta? I am... I am good. I cannot believe it's week five, though. Is that true? It feels like week 50 easily. It, it does. It feels <laughs> like it was a lot longer ago that all this started. And, um, you know, just being uh, mostly at home. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but, but I'm good. Uh, I'm good. Did you take advantage of our of our governor's uh, new relaxing of the regulations and go get a tattoo or a, a yep. massage or... Yeah, all that Tat- tattoo, <laughs> tattoo first, right. you know, just get that more time for it to heal so I can yeah. start showing it off yeah. at the bowling alley, yeah. which is where I'm going to go next. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And then movie theater. Right. right. So, yeah, we got all kinds of stuff going yeah. on. Well, uh, well, I want to go ahead and uh, and introduce our guest. Who uh, our guest is is from a place that's been hit uh, uh, harder than we have, and they have a governor who I think seems to be uh, uh, handling things a little bit better than our governor. Uh, we have uh, William Rasigliano uh, from New York. Uh, William is a partner, a founding partner of Rasigliano and Philippe, and uh, he's got offices both in uh, Manhattan, the Bronx, and in New Jersey. And you can look up William at RF Injury Law. Com. William, how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Good, good. Well, we, we were talking a little bit uh, ahead of time about uh, how things are going up in New York, and I know that you, you've had your staff and your office basically working from home. How are things going, uh, going for you, you guys? Better than, would be, than you would expect. Uh, everyone's working remotely. Everyone's safe. Everyone's healthy. So hopefully we'll be back to work at some point. Um, but I'm just happy that all my people are safe and healthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely. that's the main thing, and and you know, being able to, uh, you know, work from our houses and and uh, and you know, with the technology like we have nowadays, where we can actually get on and see people and and do things over video conferencing is a uh, is a big help. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, well, William, let me tell everybody uh, a little bit about your background. Um, like I said, uh, you are a founding partner of the fir- law firm of Resigliano and Philippe, and you're based out of Manhattan, the Bronx, and uh, I think you have an office in New Jersey, so you cover both sides of the river. And, um, and William has been named as a uh, metro area super lawyer every year since 2013 and has been named as one of America's top 100 lawyers. Uh, he's been involved in a number of uh, multi-million dollar verdicts uh, all throughout uh, New York, um, uh, especially around New York City and into New Jersey, uh, and focuses a lot of his work on representing uh, construction workers uh, who've uh, had life-altering injuries uh, and a, a number of other um, uh, you know, worthy causes. Uh, you're a graduate from the Turo Law School in Huntington, New York in 1994 as a top 20% and, uh, and then also went to uh, University of Massachusetts uh, and got your undergrad there. And, uh, and I noticed that you're a, a, a member of the North American Brain Injury Society, uh, NABIS. I had the, the pleasure of going to one of their conferences up in Toronto a couple of years ago and as a 
a really great group. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, the uh, American Association of Justice. Uh, and you have published a book on uh, premises liability claims. So, uh, so, William, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you both for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, well, the case that we're talking about is a case called Kowalski versus County of Suffolk and uh, Raymond Rancourt. Uh, and it was tried back in uh, August of 2014. Uh, the it was involved a collision uh, where Mr. Kowalski was uh, was uh, hurt badly uh, on June 12, 2009. Uh, Jason Kowalski was a field technician for Verizon, uh, and I think he was out uh, on County Road 21 putting some um, uh, putting some material equipment back into his his into his van. And a county pickup truck uh, ran into him while he was uh, out behind his uh, van and he suffered uh, a disabling back injury and knee injuries. He had an annular tear of his L4, L5, uh, had an, an arthroscopic uh, uh, knee repair and uh, a torn interior cruciate ligament um, and then battled with uh, chronic pain syndrome and uh, using um, uh, uh, Heavy dose uh, pain um, uh, pain medication and opioids, which also um, made it difficult for him to return to work. And the verdict in that case was a five million eighty eight thousand dollar verdict. Uh, again, in Suffolk County, which is uh, Long Island, out towards uh, the Hamptons and Montauk, and and those areas that uh, that, that some of our listeners may have heard of. Um, and so, uh, so just a fantastic result. And uh, it, I don't want to, um, I mean, I, ultimately you got the right result for your client, but I, I guess at first, after you got your verdict, uh, you had some trouble with the, with the trial court judge and he reduced your verdict. <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us what happened with the, with the trial court. Yeah, considerably, which was really a surprise to us. Uh, there was post-trial motions made after the verdict that we obviously opposed. I was not overly concerned. Uh, the, the trial judge had actually said to me uh, that my verdict was, in his words, bulletproof. So I wasn't too worried about it. But nonetheless, he reduced the verdict to from a little over $5 million to $750,000. And to be honest with you, I was pretty devastated, yeah. mostly because I was really proud of the jury. These were Suffolk County jurors. This was a Suffolk County defendant. These were Suffolk County taxpayers. And I thought it took a lot of courage for them to return a verdict in their own county. That's a very conservative county. Yeah. And we spent a lot of time with them in jury selection, making sure that they would return a verdict no matter who it helped, no matter who it hurt. And they did that. And I was really proud about that. And then to have it reduced uh, was inexplicable. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. in particular, because the... Um I didn't see the verdict, the filled out verdict form, but I saw the judgment and I'm assuming the jury kind of had to, it's not like they just picked a lump, a lump sum. They had to go through and award specific amounts for different elements of damages. So it's not like it, it's, it, it seemed obviously very well supported to me. It was. And, and most of the damages that they did award were economic damages, future lost earnings, uh, Benefits that he had, as you could imagine, working for Verizon, he had great benefits. A lot of those were either reduced or, in some cases, eliminated without really any rhyme or reason. But what was amazing was, after the judge reduced the verdict, 
the county decided rather than to negotiate or to pay, they decided to appeal. That's how confident they were that the even the even the reduction was going to be overturned. And and that really set this story off on a whole other path. Yeah, I mean, well, I want to ask about what their grounds for appeal could have been, but I guess that would get be way ahead of us since we haven't really talked that much about the case yet. So. <laughs> well, I, I, I am interested to hear what the, I mean, it, you know, like Yvonne said, I mean, it, it, there were several categories of damages, which include past uh, meds, uh, past lost uh, uh, um, earnings, and then future uh, lost wages. And I, 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 you know, could tell from from what we could see that there was a big dispute over whether or not your client uh, Jason was able to work anymore, and I guess the um, you you had his treating physicians basically saying that that he wasn't able to work anymore, and then the uh, I assume the county came in with some witnesses that uh, said that they thought that he could work, and it, when the judge, uh, I guess you, you do you call him justice up there, the trial judge. Uh, yes. I mean, okay. we call him judge when we're in the courtroom. But right. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, so the judge up there, uh, I mean, when he reduced the, uh, the verdict from a little bit over 5 million down to 750,000, did he give a, a basis for why he was reducing each of these categories? Not really. Uh, <laughs> I, I can, I can tell you that there was a verdict that was taken in his courtroom, I think a few months before ours, and it was purely a pain and suffering verdict. That went up on appeal and the appellate division reduced the verdict. He cited to that case, but he didn't really explain why he was reducing the verdict. So we we really, to this day, I still don't really have any idea, especially because the trial was a very clean trial. And frankly, I think that the judge was erring on the side of the defendants, knowing full well that if we did get a verdict, that they would appeal. So I think he was giving all the benefits in terms of the evidence in the case and the rulings. I think all those rulings were to the benefit of the defendant because he was specifically trying to protect the record, knowing that there was going to be an appeal. Right. And the, I'm looking at the, at the way the judgment breaks down and it looks like uh, a little bit over a, a million dollars was, was for pain and suffering past or future. Um, so e- even if he was going to reduce that section, it still doesn't really get you down to 750,000. So it just, uh, you know, I, I was wondering why he why he he took such drastic cuts at at uh, what seemed like a, a well based uh, verdict. I don't know. I mean, the future lost earnings he reduced from two point two five million to two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. So, like I said, we tried to negotiate with the county afterwards to see if there was a chance to settle. Yeah, and they wouldn't they wouldn't settle. They told us they were going to appeal the post trial. Uh, order of the judge. Um, and then we cross appealed. Is, is that how the county, I mean, before the trial, had the county uh, made any real effort to get the case resolved? Their top offer was $250,000. And, and one thing I didn't say is that um, you had won on liability on summary judgment. So you knew that when you're going to trial, I mean, you were just trying damages. Yeah, it's funny though. In my experience, you think a damages only trial is easier. And in some ways it is, but in many ways it's more difficult. When you have a liability and damages cases, as you guys know, at least when I'm trying the case, 
I make the case on liability about the defendants. And right. I'll have cases, especially if there's multiple defendants, where the first week or two of the trial, it's just me putting the defendants up and, and clobbering them, you know, going over all the, 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 the violations of rules and regulations and all of the things that they did that lead, led up to the incident occurring. And it, it can really get the jury very worked up and, and sometimes very angry at the defense. When you have a damages only trial, it's all about your client. And the, right. the strategy from the defense, and it certainly was a strategy in this case, is to attack your client and kind of subtly say to the jury, not outwardly, but in a very subtle way, this person's not worthy of receiving any compensation for whatever. Right. right. Well, in, in a case like this with the against the county, uh, you know, you're you're not able to pursue punitives, uh, I assume. Um, yeah. So, you know, there, there really is no way to really put the focus on the defendant's conduct if liability has been established. Um, how much, how much of that came into the trial on, on what the defendant did or didn't do? And then you, you're exactly right. I mean, once it comes down to just damages, then basically it, it's the defense trying to make your client look like he's being unreasonable. You and your client. We, we had some testimony about how the incident occurred only because I wanted to show the jury how significant it was, a, you know, he was a pedestrian. So I wanted to show how significant the impact was. Uh, so we had the driver of the the truck the county truck he testified some of the interesting things about his testimony were that when he hit my client the impact was so severe that even though he had his seatbelt on his head hit the uh the, the, the steering wheel so i thought that was significant we had photos that we put up on a tv screen showing the jury the because what happened was uh the defendant hit my client and then proceeded to strike the verizon van and hit it so hard that the doors of the Horizon van could not be um, open. They were they were broken. So we had that testimony. And then we had the testimony of, a, of the woman who called 911. And she testified. She saw it happen and talked about how he was thrown into the air and landed on the pavement. So we, we were able to get in testimony of how significant the impact was. The judge did allow us to do that. Right, which makes sense. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I was really excited to talk about this case is because I think it's something that's really relevant and useful to probably most of our listeners, like just reading, you know, just right from the opening, it just all sounded very familiar as far as sort of, you know, them sort of letting the knee injury go, which was the lower damages injury. Right. Um, but then taking no responsibility for the back injury, which we'll talk about. And so I thought that was great to, you know, you were able to set it up right in your opening. Like the eyewitness describes him flying through the air. So I think at that point, you're already kind of, the jury's already set up for like, I don't know who who gets hit by a car and goes <laughs> flying through the air right, and doesn't yeah. suffer some kind of back injuries. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think that there was several things that, the, listen, you also know that in a lot of these cases, your adversaries give you a little gifts. And we had a few of them along the way. And one of the things that just didn't make sense to me is he had a knee injury and he had a spinal injury, you know, a disc injury. Those are both injuries to the soft tissue. They were willing to concede the knee because it was a lesser of the injury, but they weren't willing to concede the back injury. And my position was, well, the way in which the knee injury occurs is the same mechanism or the same way that a back injury occurs. It's no different. There's rotational forces that are applied to the body. 
the body twists and tissue tears. And not only did we have our experts testify to that, but even more remarkably, their defense experts conceded that the same way you'll, you tear a knee is the same way you tear a disc. And the mechanism that tore his knee was also the mechanism that would have torn the disc in his back. And I thought that that was something that was really significant. And the other thing I did, which I have to say, may, this may have been the first time that I actually did this, is I think we're always nervous to say to the jury exactly what's going on in the courtroom. I mean, there's all these innuendos that are thrown out by the defense. And when I gave my summation, I said, listen, let's be honest. The reason they don't want to talk about the back and the reason they don't want to concede the back is they don't want to pay. They don't, they don't want to pay. They know that if you find that there was a, that his back was injured and that this surgery, uh, the need for it was caused by the collision, they know that you're going to have to award him every single item of damages and they're significant and they don't want to do that. And I think the jury saw that, but, I, but the, to say that to him, I think it really hit home. Yeah, I thought that was really effective. I mean, even even just reading it, you know, it was just kind of like, let's just cut through the crap. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, I don't know, we're, we're nervous to do that or we're worried to do it, but that's what the, they're thinking that anyway. And, and to just, right. you know, I think I referred to it as a pink elephant in the room. Let, let's, you know, my mother always said, if there's a pink elephant in the room, the first thing you should do is introduce everybody to the elephant. And I said, hey, this is the elephant. <laughs> right. Let's talk about it. This is why they don't want to pay. And right, I think right. that bothered them. So I was able to sort of get that. And there was other things that happened during the trial that I think bothered them about the county. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. <laughs> oh, man. We are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah. yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers. And plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access CasePacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. 
We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. The um, it, it looked to me like the um, it, the he while he went and got treatment for his knee pretty uh, quick, uh, pretty soon after that there was some delay in getting his treatment to his back. Talk about how you handled that at trial and how you uh, overcome you know, people thinking, well, maybe it's uh, something else that caused it, or maybe he's just trying to milk this, which I'm sure is what the defense was trying to suggest uh, to the jury. Well, in this particular case, about 24 hours after the uh, collision happened, he woke up with back pain and went to the hospital and complained about it. And I thought that even though he didn't initially have those complaints, um, I thought the fact that he had those complaints within a relatively short period of time were significant. But, but what I always like to tell the jury is when he goes to the hospital shortly after this incident occurs, there's no lawyers, there's no litigation. He's not thinking about money or trials or judges or five years down the road. The only thing he cares about is telling medical professionals what's bothering him because he wants them to, to fix whatever's bothering him. It's the most honest anyone's ever going to be. And within a short, relatively short period of time, he went to them. He told them about these problems that he was having. Uh, The defense, he had had some minor prior issues with his back or complaints about his back before this incident. And the defense really tried to exaggerate those. Uh, But I think in the end, the jury just didn't buy it. Yeah. But I think it's really helpful to say, listen, even if it's a little bit after the initial incident, if somebody is making any kind of complaint to anyone shortly after, uh, before they they hire a lawyer, I think that that's a significant thing. Yeah. Well, I always, you know, whenever uh, people like to, you know, point out stuff like that and try and make it sound like either the the, the client or the lawyers are being greedy or something, I, I always like to just tell the jury, like, let's think about this for a second. So this guy's plan was to, you know, undergo a surgery on his spinal cord and he was going to risk his spinal cord and something going wrong. Nobody likes to go under surgery. Nobody, nobody likes to go under anesthesia because you don't know what's going to happen. That's the plan in order to all of a sudden try and, you know, make some extra money out of this. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense when you, when you really get down to it. Well, what's interesting about that, Steve, is one of the, one of the defenses in this case is that the surgeon who did the spinal surgery did an unnecessary surgery, which I was happy when they went down that road. But that was one of the defenses that the doctor didn't know what he was doing and basically operated on an asymptomatic disc, which was preposterous. But that right. was part of the defense in the case. Hey, did they bring in and they had a uh, their own doctor say that that was an unnecessary surgery? No. Um one of the things that, you know, this doesn't always happen, but fortunately, in this case, it did. I'm a, I think a lot of attorneys feel when they cross-examine any witness, you have to go in there and just beat them up. And I think with the doctors, what I try to do is use them as my own experts. Mm-hmm. I try to see how much I can get them to agree with. Right. And what I basically did was, especially because you can ask leading questions. So this particular doctor didn't practice anymore. He basically is just a forensic IME doctor. 
And part of the reason why he doesn't practice anymore, he gave an interview and he said that he didn't want to keep up with the technological advances in medicine, which right <laughs> off the bat is, right. is beautiful. Yeah. But I basically got him to, to concede everything I needed him to concede uh, and, and more or less agreed with our position on, on the lower back. And he, he didn't really touch that in terms of the unnecessary surgery, but the defense attorney did. He made it a big issue in the case and summed up on it and said basically that not only did he say that there was an unnecessary surgery, but he told the jury that the doctor made my client sign the consent form after the surgery happened, which is again ridiculous. But that's yeah. part of that was part of the defense. Wow. Um, well, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about your client and um, and how he did in front of the jury and how uh, you were able to get him ready for uh, testimony. Because a couple of things that I uh, I noticed in here, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and point them out. One is he obviously was taking a lot of uh, heavy dose of pain medications. Uh, it lifted oxycodone, methadone, flexoril, Ambien. And though, you know, if you're taking those in high doses, they can certainly affect the way you speak, the way you, uh, you know, present to people. Um, and, and then I, the other thing I noticed is that on appeal, they tried to bring up the fact that he uh, had pled guilty to a uh, to grand theft. Is that right? No, they. During the pendency of the, the, the verdict and the appeal. He had had some issues, and okay. they, they were very heavy-handed with us after the verdict. They they basically they were very confident that the case was going to get reversed, that we were going to retry it, and they felt that that would be something that would be part of the trial if there was a retrial. But okay. it didn't come up in the appeal. Right. Okay. Because I, I have the in one of the articles written about it said that they that they they had raised that there was a that the plaintiff had pled guilty to felonious grand theft uh before the trial and that although that, that that had never been brought up at the trial is that was there any claim of that or no attempt to? that's okay. something I, my recollection is that's something that happened after the vote oh okay okay all right yeah. well i'm sorry about that then it's okay. um but but we'll talk <laughs> setting that aside then cuz i i was looking at that and i was like wow that could be uh, problematic but um Talk about how your client did on the stand and how you went about uh, preparing him and getting him ready to testify. So, you know, when you're in a damages only case, when they're questioning whether or not he's being honest, I mean, a huge part of the case is going to come down to uh, your client and how he does. Yeah. Well, there was, there was a few things. The first thing was because there was this other verdict with an almost identical case a few months earlier, the first thing I did was called the plaintiff attorney in that case and tried to find out a little bit about my adversary. And one of the things he told me, and, and this is one of the things that's great about the plaintiff's bar. Everyone, I think, tries to help each other. And one of the things he told me is, I'm just letting you know right now, this guy will cross-examine every one of your witnesses for days. In fact, the defense attorney took a lot of pride in the fact that his cross-examinations were longer than his direct, than my direct, which I thought was ineffective. And I told my client that. I said, look, you're going to be in for a marathon, so just try and really um, stick in with them and be patient, be polite, because I really think, you know, there's that old adage that the jury won't necessarily remember what you tell them, but they'll remember the way you make them feel. Yeah. Uh, but I think that what really helped my client more than anything else 
was his mom. His mom was one of the first witnesses that testified, not the first, but one of the first. And she spoke a lot about, one of the things I wanted to sort of establish was uh, how much effort my client put into getting better, which I think is important. And he was really, really making a lot of effort to, to feel better and to get better, which I think the jury likes and wants to see. And his mom, so what happened was after he had the surgery, he moved back to his mother's home. And he stayed with his mom during his recuperation. And she began to tell the story of watching him sort of do therapy on his own at her home. First, he started to come down the stairs on his, on his butt. Then he started to walk down the stairs. And then she watched him walk down the porch. Then he walked a block. And, and little by little, he was coming around and, and walking farther and, and, and doing better. And it really struck me as... The, the image that I had was it was a mother watching her son learn how to walk again, just like he did when he was a baby. And I really think that the jury sort of, um, I really think they liked that. And I also think they liked the, Oh, and the other thing too is um, his supervisor came and testified and talked about what a great worker he was. Uh, he, he was always on time. He was dependable. He was one of the, the best workers he had. So there was all of this testimony from these other people about his personality. And I also think the jury was impressed at how hard he was working to try and get better. And I remember after the verdict, I walked out to the parking lot with my client and his mom just before they were going to leave. And it just so happened, totally unsolicited for me, there were a few jurors who were, who were walking out as well. And they walked over to him and, and three of them gave him a hug. Oh, yeah. So they, they really, really liked him. Uh, and I think it was because he was very patient while the defense attorney was spending so much time asking questions. But I also think there were other people that talked about all these really good qualities that he had. And I think that that really impressed them. Well, and that's huge because in reading the I can't remember if it was the. Um, I guess it was the closing of the defense. I, I mean, they were basically calling him a liar. And I thought the way that, that it was handled in that closing seemed really risky if they liked your client at all. Well, I, I agree. The other thing too, and here's where I think defendants make a mistake. If you're going to do that, you better make sure that you have clean hands. And one of the things that the jurors specifically told me that they did not like was one of the doctors that the defense called had known the defense, the defense lawyer for about 20 or 30 years. They had worked that much together. And the defense lawyer did not bring that out on direct. And I, it was one of the first things I asked on cross. And that really bothered them. Because two of them, I in New York, were allowed to speak to the jurors afterwards. Right. And two of them told me that that really bothered them, that they felt as though he was keeping that from them. And I think that it's very, very tough to get up and uh, you know call the doctor a hack, call the client a liar, and then you don't have clean hands yourself. I think that really, really bothered them. Yeah. Well, and, and it just, you know, uh, the things that we talk about on this show and that, you know, every, um, you know, trial lawyer who's, who's, you know, done a great job for their client always talks about when you have a, a weakness or if you have an issue, I mean, be the first to bring it out. I mean, you have to. You, so if you've got a, a doctor who you've known for years and years and years, you, you better make sure to mention that to the jury. 
um, because, you know, uh, for sure, you're going to mention, you know, it, it, whoever's yeah. cross-examining is going to mention it, so you better uh, mention it. And then, and then the, I guess the other thing I was just going to comment on is the, these long cross-examinations, I've never, I've never understood why anybody thinks that's effective. In, um, it, it's not. Cases. Yeah. It's not. And, and the other great thing was I met, because the medicine in this case was really tricky. And frankly, I didn't, I was struggling with it. So I met with the spinal surgery, surgeon who was fantastic. He spent so much time with me, basically teaching me the medicine. And I was not a quick study. And he was really patient. And he made sure that I understood the medicine and what he did and, and how this injury was causally related. And I, in turn, said to him, listen, this guy's going to have you on the stand for a long time. And I said, he's probably going to ask you to concede some things. And if he does, just concede them. Because I'll get up on redirect and I'll, whatever issues we have, we'll, we'll deal with. And the doctor came across so well. In fact, the judge said to me, he goes, that's the first time that I ever saw a medical professional actually testify as a medical professional, professional and not just a witness. Because he was just so patient and conceded whatever he needed to. And it was funny because the defense attorney who was going after the surgeon, two of the jurors afterwards told me that if they had to have back surgery, they would hire Jason's doctor to do the surgery. So that's right. how much credibility he had. Wow. And so, so he was a traitor. He was, he was Jason's yeah, traitor. He, he was a treater and he did the sur surgery, but he came across just so well. Um, I mean, that's fantastic. And we talk about that a lot in our cases to have a, to have a good testifying treater who's willing to come to trial and, and, and talk about what happened is can be so much more effective than an expert, but sometimes it's just hard to find treaters who are, um, you know, into it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. He, now he was terrific. And I, I'll never forget my favorite part of his testimony was, like I said, they were trying to say that he made a mistake. He was going to do one surgery, decided midstream to do a different surgery, and then had Jason sign the consent form after the surgery. And when he asked him that, the doctor just looked at him and without missing a beat said, there's not an operating room in this country that will let a patient go near it without a consent form. No, he did not sign the consent form after the surgery. And I think at that point, the jury was just, yeah. they didn't want to hear anything else on, on cross. So, Yeah, That's I mean, it, it's just, the, you know, I guess that those types of cross can be effective if they work, but they are so dangerous. I mean, if you're kind of going to come after a treating physician who's just trying to do the best job that he or she can uh, for the patient, uh, and then, you know, basically, you know, accuse him of committing uh, medical <laughs> malpractice. Uh, man, that is, uh, that, that's just really, it, that's very, very risky. Yeah. And, and you should take it as a gift because it was. Right. Right. Exactly. And, 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 um, and, you know, if the, if the doctor was trying to play it right down the middle, I mean, it, it, it's going to make him lean uh, at least away from that person, if not towards you, uh, because, you know, nobody likes to, you know, be told that they that what they were doing was wrong well the other thing that was really great is the orthopedic doctor that the defense put on as their expert he, he didn't he had never done a spinal surgery before <laughs> and i said to him when you did treat patients you don't treat them anymore but when you did treat patients if you had a patient who had complaints like jason's you would refer them to a spinal surgeon like the doctor who performed jason's surgery and he said yes and then i took it a step further and i said 
let's assume someone in your family, your wife, your, your son, your daughter, someone close to you had the complaints that Jason had, you would refer them to someone like the doctor that did Jason's surgery. And he said, yes. So, you know, <laughs> he helped build up the credibility of our expert, even though our expert testified so well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of what the jury had to say, I, I noticed something in the opening and I, I, you might not recall this cause it's been a little while, but the, the, def, the, def, uh, defense counsel in opening mentioned something about electronic gizmos <laughs> and how he didn't yeah. use electronic gizmos. Yeah. And I was wondering how, if you could tell us the backstory on that. And also if you got to talk to the jury about that, cause a lot of, a lot of the time we wonder most of the feedback that we've gotten from jurors when we've been able to talk to them is that the use of trial technology, they found it um, to be very helpful, but also an indication of how invested we were in the case, that we were spending the money on on that sort of thing. But, I, you know, I've seen lawyers kind of try to take a shot at it. And so I was just wondering what happened in your case. So uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, another lawyer in Kentucky, he was using his iPad to project images on a television, which I thought was fantastic for no other reason that it was just, it was not that cumbersome. You had an iPad and a TV, that was it. So he taught me how to do that. And we began, now when we try cases, all of the images, whether it's exhibits, photographs, medical records, whatever, uh, medical illustrations, we pro project them on a television screen, which is great because that's what people watch now. They watch screens. So the, the best part of that is whenever we wheel our equipment in, you can almost see the sheer terror from the defense because they're like, whoa. <laughs> and it's nothing, it's, it's a TV and an iPad. It's nothing really all that special. So I noticed that no, normally when we wheel that stuff in, I can see the, uh, the anxiety level of defendants. And I love when they mention it because it makes us look great. Yeah. And I think what he said was, don't be fooled by all these fancy gizmos like this $5,000 TV. And I'm thinking to myself, TVs don't cost five dollars Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, where, where are you getting your TVs? Yeah, and what kind of gizmo are you talking about? It's an iPad and a television. Like, right. It's came out from outer space and no one's ever seen this before. So I thought it was, I thought it was kind of silly. Um, but I, I would highly recommend, I, I, I agree with you. I think that it makes you look that much more professional, that much more prepared. And frankly, I think that the jury enjoys seeing images portrayed on a television screen because once you get the hang of it it's very easy yeah they can see it very easily you're not fumbling around with, with big boards this this and that now sometimes i think it's helpful to still use the traditional exhibits the boards or whatever if you want to yeah. leave them there and have the jury continuously look at them but yeah. i have found that the, and almost all the time the jury will say we love the way you present the, the exhibits and the evidence and the visuals, uh, because it was just easy. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of their other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos. 
stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is ltsatlanta.com, legal technology services, uh, give them a try. We use technology, a lot of, uh, you know, different things in all of our trials. And, and I will say that, you know, we usually have the same folks come with this one of one of whose name is Bob. And usually by the end of the trial, the, the jury, if they if, if they don't like all of us, we know they at least like Bob. Everybody <laughs> likes Bob, you know, because right. he's back there just helping helping, you know, put uh, all the exhibits up. But I mean, I, I've always said to our younger lawyers, like, you know, most of these jurors, other than what they see on TV, they have no idea what a trial looks like. So they don't know that it's not normal to come in with technology. They don't know that it's not normal to have, you know, animations or to have, uh, you know, demonstrative exhibits. In fact, they expect it most of the time now. Uh, and if you don't have that, then you're taking a risk. Um, and then I, had, I, I remember a case I tried years ago against Ford uh, where, you know, we, we had a lot of demonstratives. We had models and things like that. And, we, and you know, so we, we gave our opening. And then Ford gave their opening. And after the trial was over, and it was a, a good verdict for us, the, one of the jurors said, you know, well, we, we saw how, you know, prepared you guys were in your opening and how good it looked and how, the, you know, everything went smoothly. So we expected Ford to be even better. Like, because they're Ford. They're a big company. Yeah. They should be even better. And then, in my opinion, and in the juror's opinion, they just weren't. Um, so that really, uh, that, that really started them off on, on a bad footing. But I, I think, you know, I mean, you got to do whatever it takes in order to make sure that the jury understands the issues that they know, uh, how this has affected your client. I, I, I mean, I, I've never understood the lawyers who try to make fun of people who use technology or think that they use too much technology or things like that. Cause I just don't see, I don't think the jurors see it that way. Yeah, no, it, it's silly. And I think another added benefit is when, when we're doing jury selection, I'll tell the jurors that we're going to use what we're going to display in these exhibits on a television screen. And I'll say to them, if any of you, when I do that, can't see, let me know. And I'll ask the jurors when I put something up on the screen, can everyone see it? And I, and I think that little bit of courtesy, they really appreciate. And then the other benefit too, and it might be subtle, but almost... All the time, the judge will get off the bench and get into the jury box. Now, the mm -hmm. judge is sitting next to them yeah. watching you put your exhibits up. And, and I just think it has, I do think it has an effect on them. And I think that it makes them all feel like we're all sort of in this together as you're looking at your exhibits. And, and especially if you have an expert who's now off the stand, standing in front of them, 
showing them either a medical illustration or a film. I just think it makes it a lot more friendly for them. And I think that they yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you about judges. I mean, judges, uh, in my experience, they love it when you come in and are, yeah. you know, have things to to show them, to hand them to, you know, even when you're just doing hearings, um, I, I like to bring stuff for the judges because they appreciate it too. And, um, and the other, th- and the only other thing I'll say on this point, Steve, is that if you're, if you have just straight testimony, the jury is going to get bored. They, right. they, you will lose them. You, you almost have to show them stuff just to keep their interest because Straight testimony is born. Uh-huh. So if you have something to keep their interest, uh, I, I think it's important you have to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, yeah, especially when you're talking medical testimony where you're talking about like the spinal cord, you know, hearing a doctor talk about uh, the spinal cord can lull people, you know, to uh, to sleep. But having a doctor show you what happens to a spinal cord, that's a whole different ballgame because then yeah. it gets really interesting. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Um, well, so speaking of the the medical issues in this case, uh, one of the things that that seem to have come up that I think comes up for um, in every case and almost any kind of case you have is this is is an issue of pre-existing injuries or pre-existing condition. And the defense counsel listed, I think, in the opening, um, arthritis, Raynaud's. I don't know how to pronounce it. Sacralization. Yeah, signalization of the spine. Can you talk a little bit about? I think it can be challenging, especially for new newer lawyers, to sort of, you know, because you file a case and defense files, you know, requests for all these medical records as far back as they can get, and they're digging for that sort of thing. And I think for newer lawyers, it can get tricky as to how much you you chase those rabbits and you dig into that stuff too. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about how you approach that in this case? Yeah, it's funny. When you try these cases, you learn more from trying the actual case than you do doing anything else. I learned so much during a trial. It's one of the real benefits of it. And this case was no different. When I sat with the spinal surgeon, I said to him, I need to understand. They're going to say that the, the tear to the disc is either pre-existing or degenerative. And we have to figure, I have to understand how it, it wasn't how, how do we how are we going to establish that it was caused by the collision and i want something more than just a history you know the fact that he didn't have any complaints to me is just not enough and he said to me he said listen i was in the operating room and i'm telling you that i saw the pathology of this disc and it was a severe tear if he now i also know what he did for a living if he had had this tear or this damage before the incident, he would have had some symptoms, some complaint. It would have been documented somewhere. And there is no way that he would have been able to do the type of job that he did, which was very labor intensive with this kind of injury. So I found um, his supervisor from Verizon and we subpoenaed him to come in and testify. And the guy was at a central casting, had a Verizon shirt on, came in, and he was. And I specifically did not prep him too much because I, I wanted to be as natural as possible because I mean, he's got no axe to grind. I figured he'd be a good witness. And he was phenomenal. He came in and talked about how intense the job is, lifting, carrying, climbing poles, uh, you know, heavy lifting, ladders, all these things that, he, that my guy was required to do and not just did, but did with excellence. And then the other thing, uh, so, so I had asked the doctor, a hypothetical when he testified, assuming that this had 
been pre-existing, could Jason have done all these things? And he said, no, he, he, he would not have been able to physically do it. And I think that helped on causation. And then the other thing that the doctor said was, uh, you know, he talked about the actual anatomy and how serious uh, the, the damage was. And, and he said it could only have been trauma related. I'm, I'm saying that because I was the one who actually saw the anatomy. And it was maybe the first time, it sounds obvious to say, but that was the first time that I realized how important the actual surgeon is to the case because the doctors are going to disagree about clinical examinations. They're going to disagree about what's on the film. But no one can question what the doctor sees in the operating room when it comes to the actual anatomy. You want objective evidence? There's no better objective evidence than that. And, and I think that's the way that you're able to, to really nail a causation. And they really didn't have a response to it. Yeah, I thought that was great because you set them up for that. I think in your opening, you said, you know, you're going to hear from the doctor who actually saw mm -hmm. what his back looked like inside. Yeah. And and he's the only one. And when I met with the doctor and we, and we spent all this time together, this is what we talked about. And, you know, I, I don't I think when you're trying to prove causation, I think trying to prove it based on history alone is just not enough anymore. I think you need more. And no one can dispute what the surgeon saw. Right. A lot of them take interoperative photos. You can't dispute those. I mean, you talk about it, you can put up all the MRIs you want, but no one can dispute the objective evidence of what the surgeon sees in the operating room. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about the issue of uh, your client's disability, because uh, I understand that the defense came in and, and was trying to put on evidence that he could do some other jobs uh, and, and talk about how you address that and, and went after that issue. So it's funny. I, I laugh because it was tricky. I, I sort of had a dilemma right before my summation. And, and again, I think you have to sort of understand your case. I, I think a lot of defense attorneys go into a case and they're going to try their case one way, no matter what. And I don't think you can do that. I think you have to be fluid. And as the case is going in, you have to realize there are things that are happening that you didn't expect. And one of the things that was happening was I was building Jason up to be this guy who was a hard worker and was trying to get his health back and was doing everything he could to, to get back to his life. And I said to myself before my summation, I talked to the other lawyers in my office about this. I said, I don't know that I'm going to have any credibility to get up in front of the jury and say, Jason's this overachiever, but he's never going to go back to work. And so I kind of had this dilemma. I, I, I found those two things inconsistent. So what I did say in summation, and this is sort of how the appeal started from the defense's point of view. I said to the jury, you know what kind of guy Jason is. He, he's been trying to get back his health. He's uh, somebody who, who's not a quitter, who's a fighter. And I can't say that in one breath and then also say he's not going to go back to work. I think there's a, that he probably will go back to work. He's probably not. He's not. He's not going to do anything, um, uh, a labor intensive job. He's not going to work at a job that he's selected. He's not going to work as long as he would or, or probably make as much money. But I do think he will go back to work. And what I said was, if he does go back to work, you kind of have to do a balancing act here because we also have future medical damages as well because there was testimony that he would need future surgeries and other procedures 
I said, if you do believe that he's going to go back to work, then I think you're probably going to want to give him less on future lost earnings. But because he's going to be more active, the chances of him requiring future surgeries or other future medical treatment is going to increase. So you maybe give less on the lost earnings, but more on the, on the future medical. If he doesn't go back to work, then you're obviously going to give him the lion's share, if not all of his future lost earnings. But because he's not going to be as active, he may not need some of these future medical procedures. So maybe, so then you would give him less or nothing on that. And, and that is what the jury did. They, they gave him, they didn't give him, uh, uh, they gave him all of his future lost earnings, but nothing on the on the medical, uh, which which said to me that they didn't think that he would be able to go back to work. Yeah. So that's how I handled that. But it was it was tricky. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Uh, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. I wanted to hear uh, your take on the effect of of the pain medications that he was on because, um, you know, in, in some of these cases, and I've had cases like this in, in the past where you've got your client who, you know, didn't really suffer a, what we I would strictly call a brain injury, uh, but suffered a, a number of other injuries that cause pain, which then means they have to take pain medications, which then affect things like cognitive function, focus, and, you know, things that you need in order to, you know, hold, uh, hold a job. Um, how did, how did that come into play, uh, in, in this case? Well, I think two ways. First, again, I, I spent a lot of time also with the doctor who treated him for his chronic pain and, 
admittedly, I, I didn't know as much about chronic pain before the trial as I did afterwards. And what what the pain management doctor explained to me, and it was really, really helpful. He said, listen, when you have chronic pain, you're not experiencing pain at the location of the injury. There's a pattern of, of responses that the brain can't process anymore. And when you have chronic pain, there's a there's a pattern of, of pain that the brain is is interpreting that just simply doesn't go away. So you're not having pain at the location of the injury. You're experiencing it in the brain. Uh, and he was explained to me that's why amputees have phantom pain because there's, there's a response in the brain. And he said to me, we need to explain to the jury that the pain he has is not at the site, but it's happening in his brain. And it's a constant thing that's not going to go away. And he was terrific. And, and we had some great visuals to explain that. And I could tell the jury really understood that. The problem with pain medication is the defense is going to paint your client out to be a drug addict and a, right. a pill popper. That, that's just what they do. And you probably saw in the defense attorney's summation that he did say that. Um, the good thing was the client was in the process of trying to wean himself off the medication. And the doctor had a plan to do that and went at great lengths to explain what that was. And that's the other reason why I had to sort of pull back on the future lost earnings because the doctor gave the opinion that he believed at some point the client would probably stop those medications or wean himself off, but, but still have the pain. Um, but, but it's tough. And you, mm-hmm. you know, once they have chronic pain, it's, it's, it's chronic and you, you know, they don't call it pain cure. They call it pain management. The, the right. only way to manage the pain is through medication. And it's, it is a quandary uh, because the defense is going to make your client out to be um, an opioid user. Yeah. Well, and, 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 it, you know, that is one of the dangers of somebody getting injured like this is they can develop an addiction, um, yeah. which, you know, it, it comes with, uh, you know, taking high dose uh, pain medications. And yeah. Um, you know. Well, and it's like, it's not a choice for them. And I mean, that comes back to what, what we were talking about earlier in terms of if you're going to suggest that, you know, close to the time of the incident that the plaintiff was lying about the injuries or whatever, thinking about what they could get from a, from a lawsuit. It's like, it's not fun to be a plaintiff <laughs> in a lawsuit. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, not it's yeah. not fun. It's not quick. It's not easy. And <laughs> you know, they dig through every aspect of your life. Yes. So, you know, he's put in this situation where he's in, you know, pain I can't imagine. And the only way to manage it is to take these medicines that he's then going to get criticized for taking. Yeah, it's a quandary. But I I think that if you can explain, and and it's funny because we also spent a lot of time in jury selection talking about pain and also asking the jurors if any of them knew someone who had, who had chronic pain. And, and from what I recall, I don't think any did, but then I also asked them, are you willing to be open to listening to how chronic pain occurs? And they said, yes. And I do think that if you have a doctor explain, especially with, with visuals, how chronic pain occurs and that it's something that is not controllable because it's happening in the brain, I think that the jury is a lot more forgiving or understanding that the only way to then deal with that is through medication. And I think that that really sort of neutralizes it once they understand what chronic pain is and how it's, how it occurs. Cause I think most people think of pain, well, 
you know, you have an injury. And it, it, initially, yes, it occurs at the site, but chronic pain is something much, much different. Right. And I, I like that. I think it's very effective, that comparison to um, an amputee feeling phantom pains, because I think that's something that, like, I think whatever, you know, in, in, in grade school or whatever, I don't think you, maybe you do now, but when I was in grade school, you didn't learn a lot about chronic pain. But I think at some point you always hear about how amputees sometimes feel like the limb is still there or feel pain, you know, that phantom thing. And so I think that's very effective because everybody's heard about that to make that comparison. Yeah. And I, I, I really got the sense the jury understood it and the doctor did a great job explaining it to them. I mean, first he had to explain it to me because I, I frankly didn't understand it myself, but he did a right. great job explaining how it occurs in the, in the body and in the brain. Um, you know, I didn't ask you this, but I, did, I, I was interested in you. You said you, you mentioned at the beginning how proud you were of this jury, but uh, talk a little bit about, you know, you were, you were pursuing a case against Suffolk County in Suffolk County. Yeah. Uh, talk, talk about how you approach that with the, with the jury. And, and, and uh, did, you, uh, did you do any focus grouping beforehand uh, about this? And, in, and in, how did you address that one in uh, jury selection and, and in the case? We did not do any focus groups. And it was funny because every time, you, you probably saw this too, the defense attorney got up and said, on behalf of the employees and the representatives of Suffolk right. County. I mean, he may, I, and I think yeah. that that probably didn't help him. He really right. went overboard to sort of try to relate to them as Suffolk County people. But in jury selection, again, I, I, I just tried to be honest with him. I said, listen, let's be honest. You're all Suffolk County taxpayers. We're suing the county of Suffolk. You're going to have to decide this case against the county that you live in, you work in, you reside in, you pay taxes in. And I can understand if some of you might have trouble doing that, even if it's just a little bit. I can understand some of you being nervous that if your friends or neighbors hear that you made the county pay this big verdict, that you, you'll come under some suspicion or, or uh, ridicule. And we talk very, very openly about that. So that was part of it. And then the other thing, too, that I think did have an effect on them is in my summation, I said to them, again, I, I called the defense attorney out. And I said, you know, he always refers to you guys. You know, he always says on behalf of the county and its employees, because that's who he represents. And I said, look, if I was him, I'd do the same thing. You know, that's that's how he looks at it. You guys are from Suffolk County, and therefore you're not going to want to hurt the county. But I said, I look at it in a different way. This is your county. And, and Suffolk County is a conservative county for sure. And I said, this is your county. And you have a say in what happens here. And you've seen the way that the county conducts business. This is how they conduct business when someone in this county gets hurt. Mm -hmm. They ridicule them. They call them a liar. They call them a drug addict. Drug addict they call the doctor a hat. They do all these things. And you have a say in how the county is held responsible or accountable. And I said, you know, it's. It's a lot of responsibility, but it's also a tremendous opportunity. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to do something like this. And I really think that, that empowered them. I, yeah. And I also and I also said to them, and I want to remind you of the promise you all made to me in jury selection. You all promised me that if I proved my case, that you would not hesitate to hold the county responsible, despite the fact that you live and work and reside and pay taxes here. And now I'm asking you to come through on the promise that you made to me. And, and they did. And that's, 
And that was what was so hard when the when the, when the verdict was reduced. Is <laughs> right. I believe so deeply in the jury system. I really, really do. And I felt like this was a perfect example of how the system works. Because it, yeah. I don't think it was easy for them to hold the county responsible, but they did. And I really believe the evidence warranted that. And to then have that taken away from us was tough. I mean, thank God for the appellate division. They did the right thing and ultimately uh, reinstated the verdict. But it was it was tough to have it taken away from us, uh, especially after seeing these individuals, you know, have the courage to hold the county responsible. Right. Yeah, no, I I, I love that argument that you made, or the the you know the um, method that you use with the with the the uh, jurors there, uh, and, and you know I was just thinking about when you are saying that that. that you know, when, when you live in the county, I mean, yes, you have pride in your county, but you also see everything that you think is done badly or yes. you think is not done right. So you, you probably aren't always happy with your county government. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, for, for them to come in and then and, and treat this individual this way, I mean, I think that, you know, the way you, uh, the way you address that and uh, empowered them uh, to take, you know, some responsibility for how their county does business, uh, I think is just great and obviously worked out, worked very well. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you right now, if there was a case about like <laughs> potholes in Midtown, <laughs> right. I'd, right. I'd yeah. be like, how many zeros can we add? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to ask you, do, do you want to uh, talk at, at all about the, the appellate process? I mean, because obviously, you know, you, uh, you know, had, had, done this great job at trial. It gets reduced down to 750,000. Then you've got to basically go in front of a, a is it a four judge panel um, that was unanimous, I understand, in, in, um, in reversing and, and basically reinstating the verdict. Yeah. It, what, yeah. The, the decision could not have been any better if I had written it myself. Thankfully. Right. Uh, but I was incredibly disheartened after the post-trial motions and the trial judge reduced the verdict. I, I honestly did not think we were going to get a fair shake at the appellate division. And what happened was, like I said, we tried to enter into negotiations with the county. We figured, look, they're not going to pay us the verdict. We're not going to take the reduced number. Maybe there's something in the middle. The client said that he could live with that. And much to our surprise, the county said, no, we're going to appeal the reduced verdict. And uh in New York, when, when a case goes up on appeal, you have something called a camp conference. And it's basically a settlement conference at the appellate division. And, you know, you listen to other trial lawyers and they'll always tell you, oh, I killed this guy. Oh, I did so great. And, you know, I think a lot of it, I, I don't think we're ever as bad as our worst verdict or as good as our best verdict, maybe somewhere right. between. But I really did feel like I did a good job in this case. And when we were the camp conference, and the attorney for the county and the other representative there were, I mean, complete, uh, condescending. Let's put it that. Yeah. And I was there with, the, I had gotten this case from another attorney. He was there with me because he had asked me to try the case. And I got up and I walked out. I, I couldn't listen to it. And he came out and he said, what are you doing? And I said, <laughs> I, I can't listen to this. I said, if they want to file an appeal and not pay us, I said, we, we should not sell this case. We should cross appeal. And if it gets reversed, we'll take our chances. I said, if I try this case again, I said, I'll beat him again. I said, ah. but I don't think that we should lay down and, and they're not going to pay us. So I said, let's, let's forget the negotiations. 
let's cross appeal and we'll take our chances. And if I have to try this case again, I'll, I'll do it gladly. Yeah. And fortunately, I remember I was in a deposition on another case and uh, the attorney referred me to the case was calling me, was calling me like crazy. And I finally took the call. And he's like, where are you? I said, I'm in a deposition because you got to step out. So I stepped out and he said, we just got the decision from the appellate division. I said, well, what was it? And he, and he told me they reinstated the verdict. And then, and I, and I was really more happy about the fact that justice was done. I know it sounds corny, but I was so disheartened because I felt like the system had failed. And yeah. to have the appellate division reinstate the verdict, it just, it renewed my faith in the system. And that was more important to me than anything else because I, I really do believe in, in, in the jury system. I, I think it's yeah. the best system of justice. And I thought in this case in particular, um, there was really a good display of that. And, and to have it reinstated sort of fortified my belief in that system. So that felt pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't imagine how good that has to feel after, you know, having the, the wind just taken out of you. Yeah. And then, uh, that's a good, that's a good phone call. Could you even right. go back in that deposition and like care right. about what was happening? <laughs> it was funny. I remember it's funny you should say that. I went back in the deposition and I, it was very, very hard to sit. I remember my mind started to wander. Like, right, let, me, let me get back on focus. But yeah, it was tough to go back. I was, I was giddy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, William, this has been a, a, a just a great conversation. Um, is there anything else that we haven't talked about about the Kowalski versus uh, Suffolk County uh, case that uh, was tried back in 2014 uh, that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure our listeners know about? No, I, I think we, we covered it all. I, I really brought back some uh, some good memories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, uh, yeah. Let me just remind everybody: we've been talking about Kowalski versus uh, Suffolk County and Raymond Rancourt. It was tried in Suffolk County, New York, back in August of 2014, and it was the result was a five million eighty-eight thousand dollar verdict uh, in favor of Jason Kowalski. And we've been talking to William Resigliano uh, at Resigliano and Philippe. You can find them in New York and in New Jersey, and you can also look them up at rfinjurylaw.com. William, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, been really good. Thank you both. It was a real pleasure. Really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. 
Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.